Ladies and gentlemen, grab your drinks and popcorn. Terry's feature is about to begin. Welcome to Celluloid Codswallop. Hello and welcome to this week's Celluloid Codswallop. And on this week's episode, I am joined by, well, it's a first for me, I am joined by writers, directors and editors. But what makes this even more special for me is this is the first time I have ever interviewed a married couple who also work together and do this sort of thing. So if I could just ask you to introduce yourselves, because to give some insight to the listener, uh, I didn't want to mangle names. I know how important it is to get someone's name right, and I don't want to cause any offense. My name is Gita Palopoli, like Monopoly. <laughs> and I'm Aaron Goddard. There's no way I could have got the surnames perfectly right, and I did not want to offend. Thank you vo- both very much for coming on to Sailoid Codswallop. My first question that I always like to ask people is, tell me a bit about yourself. What, where does your story begin? Well, our story ends up becoming uh, aligned in Michigan, but I grew up in South Bend, Indiana, and to an Indian family, one of the only families at the time in South Bend, Indiana, and then went to Notre Dame and then went to Northwestern for journalism for my master's degree. And I grew up in a rural, like a mill town in Maine, um, and wanted to make movies growing up as a kid, loved movies. And got into instead uh, television news because that was sort of um, what was in the area. You know, it was you couldn't get further from Hollywood where movies were being made than than Maine. But then met Gita in um, Grand Rapids, Michigan. We were working at different stations and his best friend ended up becoming my photographer. And I would drive around with his you know, my photographer and. He would say, you know, you really have to meet my friend, Aaron. He hates local television news just as much as you do. And that's literally how we, Aaron and I, got introduced. (laughs) And bonded over our mutual dislike of our jobs. (laughs) And I think the, the first thing I said to her, because I had heard from my friend that she didn't like her job. And I said, you know, basically, I know you don't want to be in television news, what do you really want to do with your life? Yeah. And she- I was furious at the time because I was like, you know, he's calling me out on this. And then when I went home, I actually reflected on it and I was like, well, yeah, he's right. What do I want to do with my life? And I loved visual storytelling, but I didn't know that filmmaking was an option for me. And Aaron really opened my eyes to the possibility of let's just pick up a camera and go try to find a documentary that we can make. And that can be our bridge to making bigger movies. And that's basically how, how it all started. And then I guess the other twist is we we were searching for a good subject for a documentary, something that felt like it could sustain, you know, 90 minutes or an hour or whatever it would be. And in the meantime, I had convinced her to start dating (laughs) and I was taking her home to Maine to meet my mom for the first time. And my mom um, was greeting troops at this tiny airport 
in Maine. Uh, she was part of this group called the Maine Troop Greeters who would go day and night because a million and a half troops had gone through this tiny airport uh, on their way to Iraq and Afghanistan or coming home. And I didn't really understand what it meant. I just knew my elderly mom was suddenly out at 2 a.m. at the airport. And we followed her down for one of these flights and we realized um, that was the documentary. That was the story we wanted to tell was these elderly people doing this. And uh, I mean, it's a profound film in our mind. It's probably to us, it's one of the most important and meaningful famous films we've ever done and it taught us so much about a who we wanted to be as human beings in life who we wanted to be as filmmakers who we wanted to be as a husband and wife we learned so much uh from these three film subjects they kept teaching us daily just lessons in living life and yeah it's it's on the surface it seems like it's about just greeting troops but it's really about finding your purpose in life and finding that human connection and the power of the human connection a handshake or a hug and what that actually means but we 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 spent five years making this documentary it's called the way we get by Mm -hmm. and uh our relationship short sort of evolved as we made that movie in fairness he said if we get through making this documentary which took five years and we survive it then we should get married. <laughs> I think that was fair. <laughs> that was sort of our, our gauge of, yeah. can we do yeah. this together? He probably should have said that for our narrative films because those, those were even harder. <laughs> right. But, and it's a very interesting, I mean, I found that a very emotional piece to watch, which is understandably, it will be for the subject matter it is. And I think the thing you were saying about the the importance for people of having a, a connection, a physical connection, and it's become ever more prevalent now going through COVID when we're told we can't touch people, we can't do things with people. The simple mm-hmm. act of shaking somebody's hand, the simple act of, of hugging somebody, it really does, it, the, the, the emotional importance you put behind that, until it's taken away, I don't think anyone really ever gets the meaning, you know, the real meaning it has for a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When we were making it and we would see that, you know, strangers in an airport and how much just a handshake or a hug meant to them, the emotion behind it. Yeah. We never thought um, as as the years went by, we never thought the act of the handshake would be what would make the movie feel dated <laughs> like that. Now with COVID, that's the part that like you don't see as much now. And but yeah, it's it's more relevant than ever as far as just what that human connection is and when you lose it. And you don't actually realize the impact that it has maybe in that present moment, but months or years after you end up knowing the significance of it. For example, there is a woman who reached out to us when we were filming The Way We Get By. And she said, oh, my son's going through. I saw that you guys had a little trailer up and you're doing this documentary. I can't wait to see your movie when it comes out. And hopefully my son will be able to make it in your documentary at some point. And, you know, we like, oh, we already finished shooting. We told her, but um, please keep in touch. And we'd love to follow your son's progress. A little while later, when the movie was coming out, she had reached out to us and she said, I want to know a story that's important to me. And we said, sure. And she said her son had gone through that airport, had been greeted by our three subjects and the rest of the main troop greeters, Mm -hmm. then 
was able to make a phone call to his mom where he had a chance to say, I love you, goodbye. And same thing with her. She had a chance to say everything she wanted to say to her son. Got handshakes and hugs from our troop greeters, got on a plane, went to Iraq, and then a week later passed away, was killed. And she said, you have no idea what that meant to have one last chance to tell my son how much I loved him. And that to be able to know that I had that opportunity meant everything to me. And so when we did a screening in New York City, she came out and got to meet the three subjects from our films personally. And it was such a profound moment. And we realized that's what filmmaking is all about, is giving people these experiences and moments that they may not realize at the moment are important. But later on, they realize how profound and poignant it was in their lives. Yeah. And it, it, on my, from my own personal experience, when you were discussing the thing of the, you know, being able to hug, etc., it gives me a flashback to myself. My mother died four years ago. And when she died, one of the last things I remember doing is I gave her a hug because I was saying to her in hospital, I've not been able to hug with the illness she had. I said, I've not been able to hug you very much. And it, was, it is. It's that you, the, the importance behind doing one little thing. Mm-hmm. It, it really does resonate. It really resonates. Um, yeah. And I just, I think it was a, it's strange to say because of the, it's a wonderful documentary in the sense that sounds strange to discuss the, on the, the importance of the subject matter, but it is, it's a wonderful thing. Thank you so much for making that because it is. Thanks. It, yeah. Yeah. It's home. In the three subjects, one of which was my mom, um, you know, they just taught us so much. And, you know, every time, you know, it was a long journey making that movie. And there were times where we were questioning whether we should do it, because as we sort of shopped it around Hollywood to try to find a buyer for it, all we would hear is stop what you're doing. Like nobody wants to watch something Mm -hmm. about troops and elderly people. It's not exciting to them. And we self-released it when it first came out because we were sure, you know, a million and a half troops had hugged our Mm. subjects. And more than that, their families would reach out to us all the time and say, Hey, I heard you're making this movie. I want to know who are these strangers that were there for my son or daughter, husband, wife. So when, when we would think about quitting, we would go to them and we would see what they were doing And you would see like the troops who were just sort of following their orders and doing their thing. These elderly people that were times at the airport for 18 hours at a time, greeting flight after flight. And would just be like, what are we complaining about? Mm -hmm. Like, what are we thinking? Like, we just have to tell this story and it will find its audience. And it really did. You know, when we self-released it, um, it was kind of amazing to see the reaction from people and how much it it touched them. And um, people yeah, still talk about that film today. Like we will be in a meeting, and it it even penetrated Hollywood because we'll be in a meeting with some executive, and they'll be like, "Oh, you guys, are the ones that made the way we get by." <laughs> and we're like, "Yeah, that's right." And it's you know that movie came out in two thousand and nine, and it's still finding its life. It certainly is. Now, interesting, we discussed we were discussing parents and I always uh, one thing that I always love to know is with the careers you've gone in what was the reaction from your parents because I I once remember speaking to uh I was speaking to Caroline Bliss about this who worked in the Bond films and saying how do you how do you 
when you're going to a career of that nature, and I said to Robin Shelby as well when I interviewed her, you've gone to something that's completely foreign to, to your parents. So what is the reaction? Because if I say went to my dad to discuss, he used to work in something to do with law enforcement. So if I went to him and said, I want to go into that, he, he'd, he'd have an understanding of that. Do you, right. do, you get a, do you get a yay or do you get a... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I certainly got a... Uh, what are you thinking? Because when, you know... We were coming from television news and I was an on-air reporter and, you know, you're on camera and my parents could see me literally every day that I was working. Telling they would love story. seeing you on television. They would love it. And then um, I said, no, I'm leaving television news and I'm going to do this. I'm going to start a production company with Aaron. We're going to make documentaries and, you know, hopefully other films as well. And it was so incomprehensible to my parents. My parents really originally wanted me to be a doctor coming from Indian parents. And I knew that wasn't the right career for me. So I, she saved yeah. lives by not, not being. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to finance and, uh, you know, I, my first job in finance was working for general mills. And when I went in there that first day, I knew I made a complete mistake because I realized like, I don't care about Cocoa Puffs or Cheerios, and they wanted me to like analyze these cereal lines, and and I was like, wow, this is completely wrong. And it, the three months I had to stay there before I could actually quit because I accepted a signing bonus, and I had to either give the signing bonus back or I had to stay there at least three months. It was really the question of what do I want to do in my life. And I mm-hmm. knew visual storytelling was something I always had a passion for, but I never took seriously because. You know, it, it isn't something in an Indian community where they're like, oh, this is a job you can have. But I don't think your parents necessarily accepted things until they were able yeah. to go into a movie theater and see yeah. the way we get by on a big screen with an audience and see the audience reaction. And then they were like, oh, OK. Yeah. My my dad passed away when I was in college and my mom was in the way we get by. So she she was sort of like wasn't sure what we were doing a lot of times as we were making it and as we were mm-hmm. shooting with her and following her around. But I think, you know, as that movie came out and we actually took her in the other two subjects, this World War II vet and this Korean vet, I mean, the year releasing the way we get by, we took them all over to film festivals. They went to the White House. They went to Capitol Hill. They they went to Hollywood and accepted this award from AARP, the retirement. Um. It is the best awards ceremony out in Hollywood. People think it's like the Oscars or something, but it's like better than the Oscars. We, we had one best documentary <laughs> by, from them yeah. and you know, it was a star studded event with, you yeah. know, Morgan Freeman yeah. and Robert De Niro and Billy Crystal, all of these stars yeah. there. And then we had our three subjects of our film. <laughs> so I think my mom at that point, like her mind was kind of blown by that year of going around with the movie and yeah. getting standing ovations. And they were you know, celebrities. I, I'm the youngest of eight. So I had really solidified my spot as her favorite at that point. <laughs> it was kind of like, no. <laughs> turning back and then she was still alive. she's passed away now but she was still alive when we made our, our first narrative feature and got to see that with an audience and stuff and i think she was she was always um supportive but also just kind of her mind was blown that we were doing what we were doing i think i think it's really hard for people that are not in this industry to understand 
uh, a, what we do, how we make a living, and also just understanding the ups and downs that come with trying to get anything made, right? Like for us, you know, documentaries are extremely hard, but then narrative films, like, you know, every project we've had that's been set up in finance has fallen apart numerous times. Queen Pins was a miracle that it got made. It, it almost didn't get made except for COVID. That was the irony behind it. <laughs> but to go back to your mom, like mm-hmm. now your mom is all in. And as Queen yeah. Pins came out, you know, there was, she was actually handwriting notes of like where that people could see queen pins and handing them out on the street to people. And then we would have people on reaching out to us on Twitter and Instagram saying, Hey, I met your mom. (laughs) She gave me this note about queen pins, uh, looking forward to watching. So she's now all in and is actively marketing, uh, queen pins. She might be the best marketing team we've actually had. you know, written on like a cocktail napkin. And anyone who actually has that should keep it because it would be like one of these like really like cool collector's items for queen (laughs) bids. But yeah, absolutely. And the the other brilliant thing is you have able, you've been able to bring your family to events that have come from these. And that must be the greatest feeling ever to to, 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 to bring the people in and show them what you've done. The feeling must be great because it just adds to the great stuff you've done, but you're also sharing with that. Was, the yeah. greatest example of that and his yeah. extended family, but but Bill Knight, who's this World War Two veteran in the way we get by, you know, he's in the movie. It's he's really struggling. His wife had passed away years earlier and he's sort of this hoarder who's given up on life except he goes to the airport every day to greet these troops and that's what keeps him going and in the movie he admits that he feels as though he's outlived his usefulness and then in that year that we were releasing the movie he couldn't walk into a room where the movie had screened a theater without getting a standing ovation and people coming up to him and talking to him about how much his story meant to them and you know it's like us in real time watching him realize that he hasn't outlived his usefulness and that people value him. Mm -hmm. That was why we were kind of walking away from that thinking we will never make a movie that means more to us than that movie. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, at that point he was like a grandfather to us. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. you know, to see that and to have the movie be able to sort of give that to him was like the greatest reward we could ever imagine. And that's why it's so hard finding, you know, we're constantly asked, how would we ever consider doing another documentary? But it's just, you know, unless like, you know, you spend years making a feature documentary, you don't know how long it's going to be. But, you know, the way we get by took five years. If you're trying to work on a feature doc, you have to really know that hey, you're going to spend a lot of money and you're going to really invest a lot of time in that process. Certainly like a fly in the wall, kind of like you're just following your subjects and letting life play out like you just don't know how long it will take. But to find something that had that same feeling and emotion and love that we carried with that film is it's been next to impossible. You know, it's been over whatever, 12 years now, and we still haven't landed on something that we wanted to dedicate our lives to because you do have to dedicate your lives to that and really go all in on a doc. And I guess one of the problems you have making a documentary like that is you are hearing people's narrative about the life and things that have happened. So I can only assume like the editing process for that must be, I'll use the word stressful. (laughs) 
That was actually, um, you know, I, I came from editing, so that was we, we had about 300 hours of footage. We had just been shooting for years and still working full time jobs and, and editing that movie. It actually really it was like another film school for us, teaching us storytelling and you know, this sort of three act narrative structure that, that mm-hmm. then we would use as we went into screenwriting, mm-hmm. because really a documentary, the story is made in the editing room. That's where you take all of this footage and boil it down to whatever, eight, 85 minutes. I think the movie was that, you know, and but you have to t- take each character on a journey and tell that story. And that was so useful to us actually editing the way we get by. I think, that's the closest thing to writing a screenplay is editing a documentary. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, but it really was like a nice bridge where then when we sat down to write a script together, you know, we, we had a real sense of like how to tell that three act story. I just want to reverse back to the fact you just said you're working a full time job while doing this. <laughs> We were Ow. still television news Ow. for the first couple of years. We yeah. we would actually we'd get a few days off yeah. and we would drive from Michigan to Maine, which is about a 19 hour drive. And we would shoot footage for a day and a half or a couple of days. And then we would drive back and go back to work. And it was a couple of years before we finally were able to get jobs in television like in Boston, which was about a four-hour drive so that we could go there more often. And then it wasn't until we were editing. We had almost a rough cut of the movie done before... um, We got any financial support. But before we quit our jobs jobs and sort of went all in to where we're like, okay, we have to finish this and get it out. And It was 2000 where Aaron quit his job working. He was working for the Red Sox and Bruins at that time cutting promos and stuff but i think it was 2007 when you quit your job and then 2008 when i ended up quitting mine and we were full-time just dedicated to making sure we had the way we get by out there successfully and you know just really trying to figure out our big thing was always trying to figure out how can this be a sustainable career for us and how can other people follow and model our path to be able to succeed in this business as well. It really wasn't until this, um, this guy who worked at PBS at the time, public broadcasting in the U S watched like 15 minutes of the movie and said, Oh, this is, I'm really interested in this and we could acquire this and give it a national broadcast. And what's funny, his name is Simon Kilmurray, which our reward to him now years later is we named Vince Vaughn's character in Queen Pins after him. <laughs> but he was I knew sort that of name rung a bell. <laughs> yeah. He was the first guy who believed in us and gave us the idea of like, oh, okay, like we need to finish this movie because there's actually a path to getting it out there. Like we we released it theatrically and dvds and all of that ourselves but he was able to get it a broadcast um like a national broadcast on television that was yeah i think early you know not early i guess like five years into the process of us trying to make a film the right people started coming together to say yeah you guys are legitimate filmmakers because up until then you're wannabe filmmakers but do you actually have the ability to become a filmmaker. And 
when Simon Kilmurray saw the, it was a 15 or 20 minutes of a cut of the movie. And he was like, yes, this, this, is, this is could the, be a yeah. movie. This is great. Yeah. It was like such an emotional turning point for us. And then one of our friends who's known Aaron for 20 plus years and me probably for 15 years, maybe longer Aaron for you, but, um, we asked him to watch the first cut of the way we get by, you know, which is a very daunting, scary thing because it's just us in a room editing. And then you bring in, you need somebody to come in and tell you, is it something really, or is it not? And he was so nervous coming because he didn't want. Yeah. What if I have to tell them that this sucks? <laughs> yeah, that was literally it. He said he was so nervous about that. And then he watched the movie and he was so moved and he was like on the verge of tears. And I remember that experience because he was like, I'm I'm so proud of you guys. And I'm so glad I could just tell you it's a beautiful film. And that to us was like, OK, like he knew what his job was, which was not to bullshit us, not to lie to us, but tell us the, the truth. But the truth happened to be that, yeah, we did have a movie that he felt that there would be an audience for and that it was good storytelling. Right. Because it comes down to can you tell a good story? And so that was like the kind of like the first thing that like catapulted us out into the world was but, that. But also what happened was then, you know, we had made a documentary that was successful and we were then approached where it was sort of like if you're making another documentary now, we would help you with funding and we would, you know, you could get this grant or that funding and, you know, which is what you need as a documentary filmmaker. Funding is always the hardest part. And we were like, no, we're actually going to make the narrative feature now um, and write a screenplay. And they were kind of like, why? <laughs> like everybody was like, don't do that. Now you've yeah. actually made a name for yourself in the world of documentaries. Your next one will be easier. And we were like, no, we'd rather take like this harder path because this is what we always wanted. This was that was the bridge to do this. And um and then we made this movie Beneath the Harvest Sky. And that, again, was just like another film school where it was like there was nobody that was going to help us or we weren't going to be able to get a big budget or any of that. So it was like, how can we do this on our own? We find is that if we believe in what we're doing wholeheartedly, the right people end up coming to help us. So for Beneath the Harvest Sky, we were like, we do everything ourselves. We're going to find as much crew as we can for the budget that we have, which, you know, making Beneath the Harvest Sky looks like it cost around $5 million, but really it was about $200,000. So it was literally everything we could get in kind. And Well, part of the plan was we knew people in Maine really loved us because of the way we get by. So part of the plan from the beginning is we're going to write a story in Maine and we're going to make the movie in Maine. and we're going to ask for people's help yeah. <laughs> and support. And yeah. that was what made it possible. I think like the yeah. community where we shot that and the communities all yeah. through Maine sort of rallied to help us. Yeah. Maine has become just an amazing state for us that they're so proud of the work that we do. And just like, they love that we're filmmakers and they've just come time and time again to help us. Ironically, the one thing that we didn't have access to was we knew we needed to get really good actors but you have to then Hollywood for that. So Aaron and I had tried to figure out like who would be a good casting director to hire for this. And Aaron and I looked and like all of some of the best like discovery teen 
shows and movies were all done by a casting director named Allison Jones. She had cast Freaks and Geeks and Superbad and all of these movies where she had discovered these young teen boys, which is what is at the heart of Beneath the Harvest Sky, Mm -hmm. like these two best friend high school kids that are trying to escape their dead end town. We're like, we need these great teen actors. So we cold called her office. And at the time, Peter Kusakis, who was her at the time, like a casting associate there, uh, was really nice to us. And he was like, yeah, send the script. But I just want to know, like at the time, Allison didn't cast independent movies and didn't really do a lot of dramas you know yeah. it was adam yeah. mckay movies judd apatow movies or tv shows yeah so he's like you know you can but i just want to like set your expectations like you know i'm happy to share it with her but it's probably not going to be anything and i think like a week later allison called us directly and asked us did you send this to me because of my ties to maine and we were like, what do you mean ties to Maine? And she ended up where we ended up filming, had family in. Well, her, her yeah. sister actually lives in Maine and her sister's husband is from the area where the movie takes place. So she's like, I totally understand this story and yeah. and said, you know, I'm, I'm guessing you don't have a lot of money. Um, I'm going to cast this for you for free. Yeah. <laughs> and it was sort of this. I mean, she's she's our closest friend um, in Los Angeles to this day mm-hmm. because she like believed yeah. in us then and helped yeah. us in a way and 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 kind of gave us the one missing thing we needed to make that movie, which was access to all of these great actors and yeah. and found these wonderful actors to play the the teens and yeah. you know the movie wouldn't be what it is without her and her help. So. Yeah. All along the way, we've always had people like that that sort of come into our lives at the right time and help us in these huge, significant ways um, to help us get to sort of the next step in our career. I mean, all I can think when you said that is, holy crap, Topa, the stars are lining. I mean, that is, wow, that's, it's very, that's incredible. I mean, those, yeah, just that little, those little things, you can line them all up to work together is that, yeah. Wow. We've felt as though if we put the right energy out into the universe, like yeah. it comes back to us and helps us. And yeah. it's just happened over and over again in our relationship of those sort of things happening where these people come into our lives at the exact moment where we need them, but not in a way where there's always in it for them as well it becomes this relationship where you know we get something from it and they get something from it uh, but it just feels like we were supposed to meet at that time and we were supposed to do this thing together it's a hundred percent true because even with allison you know she had worked on these huge movies and huge television shows yet she had never been invited to a film festival. So when the film premiered in Toronto at the Toronto Film Festival or at Tribeca, you know, of course, she, Allison was going to be there with us because she was she's just like a sister to us at this point. But like and we had made yeah. her an executive producer on the yeah. movie and not yeah. just the casting director and really involved yeah. her. And it became this like it became more than a film for all of us because it became like we were building a family and a community together of people who just loved making movies and telling stories. And the experience that she had doing beneath the harvest sky was so much fun. And she's so proud of it as well, that it made the whole 
part of that process of releasing the movie just a joy because it was like, oh, yeah, we did this together with love and care and compassion for each other. So she ended up getting the reward of being a part of an experience at festivals that she's never had before. And then we were able to have wonderful talent come to that process. And, you know, Beneath the Harvest Sky is what really showed us, you know, coming from documentary was the first time we were working with actors. And it was working with the actors that really opened our eyes to the fact that, oh, this is something that Aaron and I love doing. And this is where our talent also lies. Because coming from documentary, we were like, oh, we know what truthful and honest is. We know from our journalism and from, you know, being with Bill, Joan and Jerry and the way we get by, like we know what truth is like and we know when we know when it feels false, someone's lying to us. So we want to take that into the narrative world. And when we look at performances, we judge it from the same thing. Do we leave this performance? And I think that when you look at our body of work is hopefully you find this like truthful and authenticity to what we're doing, especially within our narrative performances. I've always wondered because you made the shift from going from documentaries into into fiction what is the biggest challenge of the jump which which i, I i'm gonna take i'm gonna go out a limb and take a guess from what you said you kind of preferred doing the fictional work because that's kind of where you wanted to go but it's i'm always intrigued to know what what's the more challenging um i mean i do think narrative filmmaking is more challenging ultimately but i think part of the reason like with a documentary Sometimes it's just like us and the subject and it, that part of it is, you know, you're trying to capture life, but it's also like you have plenty of control over what you're doing. It's just the it's just us. And when you start making a narrative film, you need so many people to be a part of it. And, you know, funding is hard for documentary, but trying to get someone to give you millions of dollars and you know that making a narrative film is just a whole other animal where there's this whole industry and system in place and it's very broken yeah so you're now kind of forced to navigate within this horribly broken system system and figure out how to navigate it properly and that part is just um, very difficult to deal with and frustrating at times. And the the funnest part is when you finally like make it to and you have just a group of wonderful collaborators and you're making the movie, but everything outside of that, all of like the politics of it and the, Mm -hmm. the egos of it can be like incredibly draining and frustrating at times. And, because there's so many people involved in the industry that aren't in it for the art. They're in it for whatever other reasons, money and whatever. Yeah. Um, And that's always like the wrong reasons. That's never, they're never helping you. (laughs) They're always like, you have to sort of like get past them or uh, get their help and get what you want in spite of them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, I think you're right. Like to, no matter what, making a film is hard, whether it's a documentary or a narrative. There are always hurdles and challenges and things that are unexpected. And all of it also comes down to money in terms of like, can you can you afford to make this documentary over mm-hmm. the time that it, you know, and, and same thing with a narrative. But 
in the narrative world, there's a lot of prom. There's a lot more promises because the idea of making a Hollywood movie is very enticing to people. But that also brings in a lot of, you know, snakes. like they're wheeling yeah, and dealing, yeah. but they're not. You know, you can't count on them. Exactly. Or, you know, we, we've had so many times where we've had projects financed and then they fall apart and the financing yeah. falls apart. And then you yeah. find new financiers and you're yeah. starting to cast and then it falls apart. Or, yeah. You know, all of these things where it's just like you never know if it's real until yeah. suddenly it's like, oh, you're going under set and you're starting. It's like yeah. not real. It's not real. And then it's like, go make yeah. a movie really fast. Go. Yeah. But it really like messes with your head a little bit because it's like you don't want to fall in love with the idea that you're making a movie until you actually know you're making a movie but you have to also like start prepping it so you know with queen pins we had prepped it twice and then it fell apart twice and then the third time we were prepping it but we were like cautious our prepping of it because we were like god is there something now that's going to happen that's going to pull it apart again and so you well especially because as we were prepping it the final time yeah. was during the height of the pandemic in yeah. Los Angeles. So we were, yeah. you know, embarking on making the movie in yeah. the worst possible circumstances yeah. and environment that we would normally make a movie in. So it's just like, are, are we doing this? Can this work? And then, you know, thankfully it did work. And we, there are, I will say there are a lot of broken writers and directors out there. And if you talk to screenwriters that are in their like 70s and 80s that have retired from this process. And and we have because there's, there's a lot of bitterness and a lot of <laughs> resentment and jadedness and people screwed out of money. It's like especially writers. You yeah. know, I think writers a lot of times, you know, that don't direct, you know, they see their yeah. work taken and made into something else, something other than what they had envisioned. And, you yeah. know, all of that takes a toll on them. Yeah. And I think one of the things we realized, you know, we've been out in Hollywood for seven years. One of the things we learned is that we have to find a different way to cope and support each other and support our teams as we go on this journey. If we want to stay in it for the long run, there's a long burnout right here that happens because eventually these ups and downs destroy you. You know, they destroy the fun of making movies and one of the things Aaron and I said was we have to find a way that Aaron and I can work together where when horrible things happen, movie making process of and it's usually involving studios or financiers or producers or something, anything outside of the creative part, then we have to find a way to understand what that suffering is, deal with it in a way that doesn't destroy us or our marriage. And then on top of it, help our team. Because usually when they're coming, it's like a curveball, a challenge that we have to address as the creatives. And how are we going to address it? And part of that process involved us doing things like servant leadership. Our leadership style is something we adopted, which is very much being in service to the story. But it's also all about collaboration and buying trust within each of the crew members. And we try to do that with our cast and also with our executives and studios and producers, because if you can get that trust and buy-in, then you're hopefully taking away the drama and the chaos, then really just focusing on making the best version of the story. And that usually translates into the best version of a movie. I mean, it was interesting when you were both 
alluding to the fact that you hear people who have talked about burnout, they've talked about the negative impact of it because I was interviewing a writer only recently and he was telling me this story of how, well, I actually said, what advice would you give to someone wanting to do what you do? And they said, don't do it because it, and you're like, well, I admire your honesty. So they're saying about the difficulty of it. They, they recounted to me how Peter Goober, the producer, had gone into a class that was being taught and basically said to people, right, straight off from the get go. I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, you know, the market's saturated. We're full up. We don't need any of you people. Um, it's not going to happen. Get out. And basically, and people, nobody left the room. We went, right. Now we've gone out of the way. <laughs> Get along with things. But it is, it's, uh, I was interested uh, when you're saying, Gito, how do you see the system as being archaic though? Well, I think even something like the foreign financing models, right? Because every actor used to have, you know, Bruce Willis used to have huge value. He still has huge value in the foreign market, but in the U.S. he doesn't have much value at all, for example. Um, but you're now trying to, in the world of Netflix and all the streaming services, they don't use those foreign models. Well, I think we're in a situation where it's not movie success is not guaranteed by an yeah. actor just having like the right name on it. Right. But that's still how they try to finance something is based on the cast, the name, yeah. rather than the script, the story, that yeah. kind of stuff. So it's and they don't seem to understand that any any of these names there, they could be involved in a huge hit or you could put them in the wrong thing and it's a bomb. And, yeah. you know, it's like for that to be the thing that they're um, sort of putting all of the money on is just the name of the actor seems archaic as opposed to, you know, the quality of everybody involved in the quality of the story. And do we think this will, can be a success? And well, even, even something, this is just an example of why the system is broken, right? Because even for a, you write a great script and you take it out and try to get financing for it. And then hopefully if you're lucky, you'll get, a bit of a bidding war and then they'll option your script or buy your script to make this movie. And then you put together a budget for the movie and they're like, okay, no, we have to cut the budget. And what they mean by cutting the budget is means you have to cut the script. So then they'll say, you know, we need to cut 20 pages out of the script. And it's like, but the script is what got everybody here. And you ever excited. And yeah. now you're saying, let's, that. And if you ruin the script, which is the foundation, like if you're building a house, the script is the foundation of your house. And now you're saying let's cheapen out on the foundation of this house, then you're basically automatically guaranteeing this house is going to come down. It's not going to be the best version of the house that you yeah. want to make. But this is what happens to every single screenwriter and every single director. It's like you end up having to like protect this script with every ounce, not just from the time that it's getting trying to get financed but all the way through till the last day of production you are constantly fighting to protect it from like scenes not getting cut from lines not getting cut from interpretations of like but you want to just protect the purity of what people fell in love with to begin with i mean i do think the on the flip side positive yeah. parts of yeah, let's talk the positive. Is, you know if you if you write quality scripts, if you 
work hard and do things right. Like that still counts. Like Mm -hmm. we're a great example of like, there's no sort of nepotism. Like I'm from Maine. She's from Indiana. We had no connections out here to now be able to write a script and get, you know, Kristen Bell or Vince Vaughn in a movie and get a movie made. Like, yeah. Shows you that anybody can do it. Like it's there's plenty of nepotism out here and there's lots of yeah. examples of people having a much easier time. But yeah. if you're willing to put in the work and do quality work, you can rise yeah. up in the industry, which is, you know, yeah. good to know that it's they it's very closed off. It's hard to break in, but it's not impossible. Was it somebody told us it takes seven years? Was it five or seven years? I think like five years. We didn't move out to Los Angeles um, until after we had made Beneath Mm -hmm. the Harvest Sky. And when that premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival, we got agents and a manager and it felt like, oh, there's a reason for us to move out to Los Angeles because there's actually like, people want to meet with us and we should go out and take these meetings and try to get other movies off the ground. But we didn't move out here until we felt like we had already somewhat made it a name for ourselves within the industry. Mm-hmm. And when we came out, they said, yeah, you know, you're going to spend another five years just networking, get more people yeah. get to know you. More people want to maybe work with you, you'll more scripts out into the market. And it was yeah. like that. I mean, it was about we've been here seven years now, but it was about five years before we finally got a movie like off yeah. the ground and, and going with yeah. Queen Pins. And, and that was five very difficult years for us because people who love to make stuff, you know, we love making movies and we ended up we writing, writing a lot. We wrote our like we we're writing for ourselves. It was like five years of just figuring out how to sustain ourselves as we just started writing more scripts because that to us was the key to getting our next movie. It was about five years in when we got a job um, writing a script for Amazon where it was like, oh, somebody's going to pay us to write a script and felt like a huge victory where it was like, oh, we've written all of these scripts on spec, just writing them. Nobody's paying us. Yeah. And now, even though we hadn't gotten a bigger movie made, people had read those scripts and suddenly somebody was like, we'll pay you to write a script. And it yeah. was like, yeah. wow, OK, yeah. like that's terrific because yeah. nobody's been paying us. Yeah. I mean, it perfectly shows that when you hear people say these people are an over, oh, this person was an overnight success. This is not the case. You hear people saying, but I've been slugging away at this for 10, 20 years sort of thing. It's not mm-hmm. something that just happens. You've got to put the hard work in and you do a, the, uh, an excellent example of that. When you were talking about your scripts and things that obviously you've been producing scripts and writing things, who would you say influences you when it comes to, to the things you, you work on? I mean, we're really drawn to true stories. Um, almost everything we've written is either based on a true story or inspired by a true story. Um, and then I think we really, we always want to keep it grounded and honest and truthful. We love the research of it. Um, in scripting, I don't know if there's like influences as much as, you know, for, for us, there's, there's all these different filmmakers in that we like for different reasons, but it's always like, what movies do we both 
like we'll hit on a movie where we both love it and that will become sort of a touch point because there might be a movie that she loves and I'm like, oh, it's okay. Or I love. Yeah. And, <laughs> but whenever we find those movies that we both love, those will become like guideposts along the way where it's like, we can both watch Shawshank Redemption <laughs> yeah. anytime it's on. So it's like, yeah. that becomes a movie yeah. that, you know, I don't know if yeah. it influences us, but it becomes like a good talking point or reference to something or any yeah. of those movies that, you know, Hal Ashby, yeah, like Harold and Maude is like something that we both love, but then he does like the last detail or coming home. And what he showed us is that you don't need to be defined by genre, but you just have to tell really good stories, stories that move people in profound ways. So we'll go back to stuff like that or we'll yeah. reference a movie like that to yeah. be like, oh, yeah. like this or every film that we have. We have our film, like our favorite directors that we reference in terms of that. Usually Steven Soderbergh comes in multiple times in different that we're making or Alan Pakula on this next project is like a definite influence. And I think Soderbergh is another one that, you know, make movies across all genres, um, but still makes them with a a very grounded feel. You know, like it's never like big, broad, crazy. Even making queen pins where we were leaning in and trying to get a comedy. It was like, we still wanted it to feel sort of grounded and in, in a real world and not like a broad comedy where things are kind of going off the rails. But Queen Pins, it was a little different. It's, it's, it's such an anomaly. A, if you knew any of our prior work as you do, you clearly know that Queen Pins was, is so different than what we've done in our past. And that to us was part personal reasons, but also like we, it's a story about coupons. <laughs> And if you take coupons and this thing very seriously, I think you're missing the point of what we wanted to say culturally in our society in America, which is we're all like a coupon, we're all undervalued and discounted. And in order to succeed in the U.S. at least, you have to find loopholes to be able to break out of the box that society wants to put you in. Like each time we've tried to succeed, it's because we've broken out of this box that people have wanted us to like they kept put us into that box and you know one of the reasons we wanted to do it as a comedy versus something more dramatic is that you know Aaron and I were both grieving my dad had died in 2017 and December 2017 he passed away and in January 2018 we started researching the story and it felt like if we were going to sit down and write this script we wanted to bring some joy and happiness and healing to this process as we were writing it and we wanted to make each other laugh through that process. And we were like, think about like if we can make people laugh as we're telling this, but also inadvertently, which we didn't know until we actually reflected on it. We were realizing we were telling the story of Connie and Jojo was a lot like telling the story of Aaron and Gita trying to break through in Hollywood. We kept feeling pushed down. We felt feeling like we weren't respected or getting like the opportunities that we deserved. And we had to figure out the loophole. And that loophole ended up being queen pins. Because it was a little bit more commercial, had a smaller budget than our other scripts that we had written. And, yeah, we felt like in the marketplace it could make money, which we ended up proving that it did. And am I correct in thinking, I think uh, you actually answered this for me, Gita, on Twitter. The couponing thing had come from a re- something that happened in real life. Is that correct? Because the, well, the couponing you, you have in America is slightly different to us. We all have coupons. But to my knowledge, 
there is no way you can do this vast level of coupling where you take, say, a hundred and something dollar bill down to like one dollar. So what was the real story that influenced it? Yeah, back in 2012, these women in Phoenix, Arizona had created this sort of 40 million dollar coupon scam with counterfeit coupons. And Gita had stumbled across this story on a coupon blog and it had the name of this detective who had worked the investigation. So we went to Phoenix and met with him and really used it as a launch pad for the story that we wanted to tell. We completely created the characters within this framework of this real scam that these women had done. And, you know, so what they did, the kind of money they made, what they did with their money, like those things are are in line with what really happened. But the characters characters themselves are complete sort of creations um, because we really did want to tell this different story within that about being undervalued and sort of finding this loophole to get around the system. And yeah. And just like really believing in yourself and finding a way to succeed, I think was like all different kind of components to it. And also not, just, not letting other people define your worth. That exactly. was that was a big part of the, the story. That was the part of the story and also part of our lives. I feel like we kept having to say, like, you know, we would go into pitch meetings at studios and financiers and they would say, we love your script. We love your cast, but you guys don't have value, which meant as directors, we didn't really have enough of the cachet or value of being able to make a successful movie that makes a ton of money at the box office because we had made you know, a tiny indie movie and we understood it. But when you hear that over and over and over again, and you just want to say, well, give us the opportunity and we can prove it to you. And never having that opportunity, we kept saying, well, our time will come. We will be able to do this and we will be able to make a movie that makes money for the studio. And, and Queen Pens did that. When you, you know, getting that sort of rejection, how do you find the resilience to keep going? Because it, it must grind you down. Obviously, you over, you overcame it beautifully, but I'm intrigued. How do you, how do you, how do you keep bouncing back from it? How do you take the rejection and go, actually, you know, I'm not going to take no for answer. I will keep, you know, pounding the pavement, knocking the door sort of thing. I think we were always having uh, moments of feeling maybe not complete success, but we, we always felt like we were moving forward and we were always sort of gaining experience and, uh, networking with people and feeling like we were we were making progress or writing scripts that would get noticed and people would be excited about. So it just felt like we have to just keep pushing and one of these are, scripts will hit and one of these movies won't fall apart. The financing won't fall apart. We'll get it made. I think also I don't know how someone does this business alone. Someone is no. a screenwriter or a director by themselves because when Stuff happens when the financing falls apart or just like the, you don't get any actor that you need that's going to move the mo movie forward or any of this stuff. It's just like you, it's very hard to talk about it with other people that don't intimately know what you've been going through. And mm -hmm. so to have Aaron be there to talk me down sometimes or vice versa and try to rationalize and strategize, OK, well, if this failed, let's try this. If this failed, let's try this. And really just coming up with an idea of, okay, if all of these doors are closing, let's find the one that's going to like open a little crack for us to slide in. 
Um, and that takes a lot of like creativity and thinking outside the box sometimes because nobody wants to say yes to you out here, right? It's so much easier to say no, because if you say no, you're not risking anything. If you say yes, you're taking a risk. And if it doesn't succeed, it, you know, a lot of execs say it could be my job. And we say as artists, like that's the most exciting thing is when an executive wants to take a risk and bet on you because you're betting on art, you're betting on creativity. If you believe in it so much that you're willing to bet on it, then that says like you're willing to go the distance. And that's an executive we as artists want to work with. But there are very few people that want to take calculated rest. I would also I, say, go ahead, honey. No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say like people that say they finance movies and they are, fi- are money people. Like what, how do they say it, Aaron? It's like, I'm a, I know finance and it's like they're investing in movies. It's like there is no... Like I'm a numbers person or something. It's like, yeah. well, yeah. It, movies are, are rarely the best investment out there. Yeah. <laughs> there like, I'm not sure there's ever been mm-hmm. like if you're really into numbers and making profit, you should probably whatever be in real estate or something else. There's many more ways yeah. to invest money that aren't as risky as movies. And I think that's something that like if you're going into this business, you have to know like there is no model that's like a sure like fire. This is absolutely going to make money all the time. It's no, it's like the same thing. You buy a painting and you really hope the artist is going to like be worth something in 10 years as well. And your investment's going to pay off. Well, it's the same thing of making movies. You just hope that your artist that you're betting on is going to make something valuable and beautiful and people are going to want to see, and it's going to get out there in a big way and it's going to be worthwhile. But you, you know, we're like racehorses, all of us, like you want to bet on the right racehorse and, that's kind of how we see ourselves in Hollywood is like, okay, we're the racehorse. Uh, one of the things I really love when I watch Queen Pins is not only there is comedy element to it, but I like the real the real emotional part you saw of it. Because when you looked at uh, Connie, which is Kristen Bell's character, it was seeing that she was doing it to find – she was doing everything to – because obviously she wasn't able to have a child that hand worked out. And she was having to find self-worth. This was giving her self-worth. And that really is something that really kind of hits home because you are seeing subjects within the film you've made of things that it's not all just, it has wonderful comedy elements, phenomenally good comedy elements. But the bit I really like was the emotional heart stuff where you're seeing why things are happening. So, you know, Connie needs uh, something to, well, she needs a purpose, doesn't she? Because she feels she has no purpose because she's not, you know, everything was set around having a child and that's not worked. Her husband is not understanding of the situation. I mean, it's that incredibly cutting thing when he's saying, well, we could have had, I'm going to be honest, I thought, what a bastard. When he's saying, you know, we could have had all this money and spent it on other things, but you, you put it straight on her. You wanted to spend this on, you know, uh, IVF. And I'm thinking, dude, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I think in, with um, in trying to have a child and when the people are struggling to have a child and they're going through IVF and, you know, none of that is covered by insurance, at least in the U.S. I don't know what it's like in other countries in the U.S. None of it's covered. It's very expensive. You're falling into debt. And quite often it could be like one partner wants it more than the other or you you know you get pregnant and lose it and one partner gets over it much quicker than the other but 
it, it often if they're if you're not successful in it, it often like tears a marriage apart because, you know, people grieve in different ways. People deal with these stresses in different ways. And if they're not on the same journey, it doesn't work. That was definitely what we were trying to show, even though even through a comedic story, it was like these dramatic beats to the story that, you know, felt like they do happen out there. Well, it's even, you know, if you actually took the um, examination of Connie's character, even things, something simple as her being a former Olympic athlete and how her character came about for us was we were watching a television doc on Olympic athletes and how they're all in debt and they're all struggling to survive and they use coupons to survive because the United States doesn't support their athletes. They don't sponsor them to train subsidize yeah, them in any way. Yeah. So even though you're representing your nation in the biggest stage around the world and you're a top athlete, unless you're like the Michael Phelps of the world, which is like, you're like three or four or five athletes. Most of you are competing and struggling in debt. And that to us was shocking and sad, but also that's the reality of what this is. And we were like, okay, well that's, that's Connie. She's a go-getter. She's, She's extreme with everything she does, whether it's being an <laughs> Olympic athlete or couponing. Yeah. But she also had this thing to pour all of her uh, competitiveness into that then, you know, Olympic athletes, they're done by 35 or something. And now it's like, OK, I'm a 35 year old that's super competitive. And now all of that's taken away from me. Like, what does that person do with their life? And it felt like if that person got into couponing, they very well may go on the journey that yeah. Connie went on. From, from, the, from the first time I saw this film, I wanted to ask this question. And you'll forgive me for not knowing this. Power walking. Is it a real Olympic sport? It is, yes. <laughs> and it's been around since like 1908 or something like wow. that. It's been a long time. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that was sort of like us watching this segment and saying, oh, if she was a former Olympian, that would be interesting. And yeah. and then it started tying in with, you know, uh, women Olympians having trouble um, conceiving because of the what they put their bodies through. And then we're like, what, what's some of the most undervalued Olympic sports out there, which, you know, the fact that you've never heard of it, we stumbled across this and we're like, Whoa, this is a real Olympic sport. And it's like, Oh, maybe this is what she's in. And we actually, you know, learned a lot more about that sport and how difficult it is. And we had the top U S race Walker, uh, train Kristen Bell, um, she actually, the, this woman, Robin Stevens, just competed in Tokyo in the Olympics. Okay. But to understand from her that race walking isn't, you know, any easier than like running a marathon or doing any of these things. It's like a real hardcore mm -hmm. what what you put your body through to compete at that level is intense. Even it's incredible. Though it's incredible. The sacrifices that you have to make and you don't switch that off once you like program that way it's not a switch that you turn off and that was something that we would say is like well rick connie's husband knows what he married and who he married and so he needed to either embrace that or he's in the wrong marriage 
Yeah, he probably wasn't prepared for her to turn that competitiveness toward towards coupons. Yeah. <laughs> and when it came to the casting of the film, how did that come about? Because you've got a very diverse cast. You know, you've got Kristen Bell, you've got Paul Walter Hauser, who it just his character. There are elements of his character that I really related to. <laughs> predominantly the part when he comes home after he's been sort of like dealing with people, he's been on the plate, etc. he just sort of screams and it, for one of my previous <laughs> role, jobs I had, I was like, God, I so understand where this man's coming from. Um, you know, Vince Vaughn playing, uh, uh, it's a member of the, the U.S. Post. Uh, wait, no, is he Postal? Yeah, Postal. Yeah, he's post- yeah, he is Postal. I don't, I had a blank from him. Yeah, he's U.S. Postal because he makes the comment, doesn't he? No, a postman carries a bag. So, yeah, <laughs> that'd be a postman. How did it come about, you know, casting these people and, and aiming for those sort of characters? Yeah. I mean, I think it all started with Kristen mm-hmm. and really, you know, yeah. when we had written the script, we weren't really thinking of anybody in particular, but we knew the qualities we were looking for. And I think when can't remember the first time Kristen came up, but it was like, yeah. oh, she would be perfect because yeah. she has this real go-getter vibe to her and she's extremely likable. Yeah. I mean, she came on first and then uh, she we were trying to figure out who should be our um, Jojo. And mm-hmm. Kristen actually suggested Kirby. And when we, we asked Kirby to come over to our house and we sat down and had chai and samosas and spent like five hours talking to her and we realized like oh she has all of the characteristics of what we would want in our jojo but she's just also a lovely human being to work with and that's one of the key elements that we really look for within our cast is just who wants to collaborate with us who wants to work with Mm -hmm. us and Kristen and kirby were friends already so that made it easy that we knew they were going to have that chemistry but also it's fresh right you haven't seen them playing these roles in this way before they've been in other shows together, but in these roles we hadn't seen, like we haven't seen Kirby do a dance sequence like this. We haven't seen them like have these experiences. So and even having Kirby have like a co-lead role in a movie, like to us, we were, we think she's so great and, you know, hoping that this leads to bigger roles for her. Um, But this I think was, you know, her biggest role in a film to date, and she just was amazing. See, I, I don't want to give anything away, but as soon as you mention the dance thing, it's running in my head and just makes me smile. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. she she loves to celebrate a, a good sale. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and Paul and Vince, I, I think what really worked for us for the movie is Kristen and Kirby really are friends in real life, and when we were able to get them in the movie together, we knew their chemistry would really come across. And then Paul and Vince had started a friendship in real life. And, you know, we had Vince had been attached to something else we were doing. And then we met with Paul and we had been fans of Paul for a long time. And when we asked Paul who he, some people he, he would like to work with or was excited to work with, Vince was the first person he brought up and said, you know, we've been sort of having this friendship and we want to find something to do together. And we're like, oh, like we're we know Vince and we kind of all went to Vince together. together And and, you know, we knew again, Okay, well, if they're wanting to work together and have this friendship going off camera, hopefully their chemistry will be great together. 
and we'll have these sort of pairs, this these two sort of buddy comedies running yeah. at the same time. And we we think yeah. it, it worked as well as we were hoping it would. I think one thing that's important to us, and we talked with our cast about this, is we don't want to judge our characters because they're not black and white. There's not the villain in this movie because if there's a villain in this movie, then we're all villains because we all make good choices and we all make bad choices. You know, did, does Paul make good choices and bad choices? Yes. In the movie. And does Kristen make good and bad choices? Yes. But depending on their circumstances and how you interpret it, like maybe those bad choices were good choices at the end to get to the greater good. So we, we don't want to judge them. We want the audience to decide like, Oh, are they, are they good or bad or how they feel about them or at the end of the day like hopefully if they're like us you're rooting for both of them to succeed and you're conflicted because you don't know if you want to see these women get in trouble or not and how you feel about all of that and I we love that complexity in that gray area and I think a lot of times people want us to tell you how you have to feel and we don't believe that's the case and it's also that that interesting point for Kristen's character when again no spoilers but I'll just say the shoe drops on the the uh, the magnitude of what she's done, what it can, of what it, and and you see this point where she's kind of saying, "Well, I didn't think he was actually going to have that much of an impact." And you're like, and it's explained to her, "Well, actually, it does. It had more impact than you want." But you're right. It's within the film. It's the complete shades of grey thing because everybody's doing everything for a very specific reason, which may sound strange because everybody does everything for a specific reason, but none of them have done anything with malice. None Mm -hmm. of it has ever been, well, we're going to just do this because of getting somebody. It's all about we need to do something that's going to help ourselves, but also because what they're doing is they're trying to help other people because the net goes wider. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that I really liked when I saw this film. I remember seeing the trailer to it and just thinking, this is going to be, as soon as I saw the trailer, I am not lying. I thought this is going to be good and this will not just be comedy. This will be deeper than that. And I was, <laughs> you very much proved me to be correct because I just think it was brilliant. I've been telling people constantly, you've got to see this film. Oh and when they say, how do you describe it? So it's, it's, there's comedy elements. There's far more to it than that. Far more to it. And I remember when I first saw it, I was having quite a bad day. And it immediately improved how I felt. And that's how I've described it to everybody. And it made me think as well. So I think oh, it's absolutely brilliant that, film. That, that was the the goal, especially as we knew, okay, now we're making this during the pandemic. We're like, we need to lean into that and just try to make something that's not too heavy, something that people can watch. And hopefully it brings them a little joy, a little laughter, makes them think a little, but like wanting to really lean in and do something like that. Yeah. I think it's a little bit like you said, like on the first watching, it can be just like, oh, this is a fun, cute film or whatever. But if you watch it a second or a third time, you get, you see what we're trying to subtly infuse within the story. And like, I think, you know, we're come from social issue backgrounds and you'll see within there, we try to weave in, very subtly thoughts that can reach, you know, when we wrote this film, we really wanted it to reach middle America. So much of it is on East coast or West coast and movies are released and that's who they really engage with. But we really wanted like the heartland to really connect to this film, no matter what political stance that you're taking, 
but even as such, like subtly just start a conversation about light topics of things that are very hot topic here in the U.S. So, you know, to us, it's like it's layered if you give it a chance to take it in. Yeah. And some of it does really emotionally hit you. You really that and that though. I mean, that, I'm not, that's not a bad thing. I don't want anyone to ever think that's a bad thing. That's a very good thing. It's a very good part of the film you've made. You mentioned, of course, COVID. So that through you, I think you were saying that was also a spanner in the works, but it's also slightly beneficial. So could you elaborate on that a bit for me? How on earth do you make a film during the most insane global pandemic situation? <laughs> I think one thing we we were supposed to start production on or open production offices on Queen Pins on March 16th of 2020. And on that Friday, March 13th, everything shut down in the U.S. and our financing fell apart. But when we were going to do that, every every independently financed movie needs to have insurance against sort of catastrophe happening and insurance had already been bought for queen pins and it didn't have an exemption for covid as soon as everything shut down for covid Mm -hmm. no independent films could get insurance because they all had a covid exemption which was like if you shut down because of covid we're not going to cover you so no independent movie could really get going but what are you supposed to do? <laughs> well, that's just it. None of them. We had this sort of golden ticket insurance policy that did not exempt COVID that we still had for the movie. And it was sort of like when we win, we were the only independently financed movie shooting in Los Angeles because we had this golden ticket of sorts and that did make it possible once we got into covid and all of these places realized we're going to need content what projects can actually go we were able to be like we can we can make queen pins right now we have this insurance policy where and that actually helped us get the financing back going again it became this whole ordeal of making it during COVID and creating a whole new department on a film set and keeping everybody safe and all of that. But part of the reason that we were able to get the movie off the ground was because we had this insurance policy that would at least guarantee if we shut down because of COVID, our financiers would get paid back. Mm-hmm. It didn't guarantee anything about getting our movie made. If we shut down because of positive cases, the movie would probably fall apart because we didn't have the money to shut down and stay down and then come back up. Um, we had no extra money in our budget. So it was kind of like a tightrope. We were walking, making it, but it at least allowed us to make it. Yep. I'm astounded that you, I mean, that's incredible. You, all that was thrown at you and you still produced a, a, an exceptional film. Uh, I will ask one qu- other question, uh-huh. which is, I, whether this is because I'm British, I don't understand, but Queen Pins, the title. Yeah. What's well, it? In the stories, we the, the couple small stories we were reading about it, they compared these women when when they kind of took them down to like a drug cartel, like it was like busting in on a drug cartel, but it was coupons. So there was a lot of like, you know, kingpin cartel, kingpin talk. (laughs) And I think somewhere in our heads, we're like, oh, but they're not kingpins. They're queen pins. Yeah. And then it just stuck. And 
everybody seemed nobody seemed to question us. So yeah. <laughs> we've always struggled with titles, and nobody yeah. questioned that one. So we're like, we're going yeah. with it. We are uh, beneath the harvest guy was always called blue potato, and we loved it. And then I can't remember it was this some when we're taking it to the festival, people were like, oh, it's not a sexy title. It's not. You need to make it something else. And we ended up changing the title reluctantly to beneath the harvest guy. Nobody can say beneath the harvest guy they always think it's under a- the harvest moon or like every, every option except beneath the harvest guy and when we get the rights back we want to retitle it back <laughs> to blue potato <laughs> hey sounds good so i always like to ask this question if you could work on anything if you could produce if you could go back in time and be involved in making something if you could go into now and or the future and make anything what would it be well, I mean, the easiest thing for us is we we had the script called Crook County that we were trying to get made for years. years. Uh, and the, that was a project that kept getting financing and falling apart. And it's this true story about this young lawyer in Chicago in the 1980s who went undercover for the FBI and took down a hundred judges, lawyers, and cops that were all crooked and fixing cases and taking bribes. And it's sort of like this Donnie Brasco kind of movie that we're really, the reason we then turned our attention to me queen pins was so we could hopefully get the leverage to make that movie. Mm-hmm. And it's still, we're still like fighting to get that movie made. So the easiest thing is I, you know, I would love to make that movie. <laughs> yeah, make it on our terms the right way. Like there were options to make it. But it, again, it was cutting the budget, which meant cutting the script. And it was like that's you're just asking to make a disastrous film. So and it's a us, period piece yeah. and it's this big sort of sprawling cast. And yeah, but, you know, it's it's very relevant. It's all about yeah. corruption and. Uh, you know, you need underdog heroes, like heroes who are willing to do the right thing. And I feel like this is so much about that. We're totally drawn to unknown people making huge sacrifices to do the right thing by their community. Unlikely heroes, unlikely heroes. Like but we so a, that yeah. that's still, you know, hopefully yeah. we get that made. But that yeah. that would be the the easiest thing because it's something that we're still in the midst of, of trying to get made. And we're casting right now on a project that we really love called it's currently it's called the untitled David Armstrong project, but it's a true story of a Boston investigative journalist, David Armstrong, who spent the last four years investigating the Sackler family who are the owners of pretty pharma and the makers of Oxycontin and his journey of uncovering the truth. Um, and the wrongdoings of what the Sacklers did um, for our country. And that, yeah, as soon as you said, I thought, I know that name. Where do I know that name from? And then when you, you, you gave me the piece of the puzzle. So, yeah. The, so, that, God, I'm really looking forward to seeing both of those and anything else you've got coming down the pipe because. I mean, you've got me on just as soon as I heard, like, you know, 80s. I love 80s stuff. So as soon as I heard 80s, you know, and investigation stuff, it's like, yep, that's definitely going to be a good one. Um, so I would just like to, I mean, thank you so much, seriously, for taking the time to talk to me today for doing this interview. Uh, I hope you, I hope it's been enjoyable. I know our listeners are going to absolutely love this. Uh, so 
just to know, you know, to, to bring it to a close, I'm not eating into your time too much. Uh, I would say, you know, thank you both, uh, Aaron and Gita, for doing this. Uh, I think we've been talking of celluloid cod's wallop, uh, and I wish you all the best for the future, and thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It was so much fun talking with you. Thank you for your support and championing us as filmmakers.